Welcome to The Wildlife, a program that probes the mysteries of the animal world through interviews with scientists and other wildlife investigators. I'm Laurel Neme, your host for The Wildlife, and also author of Animal Investigators, How the World's First Wildlife Forensics Lab is Solving Crimes and Saving Endangered Species. Today on The Wildlife, I'll talk about wildlife law enforcement with veteran U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Special Agent David Kirkby. David Kirkby was a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Special Agent for 20 years, from 1988 until he retired in 2008. Raised in North Canton, Ohio, Kirkby worked for years in the Federal Wildlife Refuge System, starting in the West Desert of Utah before moving to Montana's Lee Metcalf Wildlife Refuge, and then the Crab Orchard Wildlife Refuge in Southern Illinois. From there, he moved into U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service's Law Enforcement Division, first as a wildlife inspector at O'Hare International Airport in Chicago. That helped prepare him for another shift as a special agent. In 1988, after extensive training, he began as a Fish and Wildlife Service Special Agent with his first duty station in Montgomery, Alabama. Eventually, Kirkby moved back to Chicago, where he pursued numerous complex multi-year undercover investigations, including ones on primate smuggling and on the pet tarantula trade, which you'll hear about today. When I talked to David, I started by asking him how he first got interested in wildlife law enforcement. Well, obviously you know about Operation Arachnid. That was uh, an investigation into the illegal uh, smuggling and commercialization of uh, Mexican red-kneed tarantulas specifically. But generally that genera of Brac Pelma, of which uh, a good percentage of them are endemic to Mexico. And then I had another investigation called uh, that was uh, a primate smuggling investigation where um, commercial research companies and wholesalers were importing into the United States from various countries uh, primates for the research industry, and they would uh, bring them into the United States and, and uh, put them through quarantine and then sell them. Was this legal? Some of the foreign countries had laws that basically made it unlawful to export wild-caught monkeys. In other words, they wanted to keep their resource, so a lot of the countries uh, required by law that the monkeys uh, come from um, reproducing colonies or captive bred colonies instead of wild caught so that they could always sustain their uh, populations. How did that investigation start? So basically that investigation started out with a company importing and there's a whole myriad of uh, regulations involving the importing of live wildlife. There's the the crating requirements, there's the requirements of food and water and how they're to be packed and how the crates are to be built. And, uh, of course, they can't have pregnant females uh, of, of third trimester or uh, unweaned young or, or that types of thing. So there's a whole myriad of wildlife regulations uh, that are called the IATA, called the International Air Transport Regulations, which the basically piggyback uh, the airline's requirements as well. And uh, we also have the Lacey Act with the Fish and Wildlife, which I'm sure you're familiar with. Just to provide a little more detail for listeners, the Lacey Act bans trade in wildlife, fish, and plants that have been illegally taken, possessed, transported, or sold. 
What's particularly notable about the Lacey Act is that it enforces other federal, state, tribal, and foreign laws that protect wildlife by making it a separate offense to take, possess, transport, or sell wildlife that has been taken in violation of those underlying laws. Also, the Lacey Act prohibits the falsification of documents for most shipments of wildlife, making that a criminal penalty, and it also prohibits the failure to mark wildlife shipments, which then becomes a civil penalty. It's kind of one of our bread and butters. We, a lot of people don't know about it, but it's probably utilized more than a lot of, the, more than a lot of our other laws because it, it allows us to uh, enforce foreign country law. So that was utilized in, in that particular investigation where we caught the company, uh, how shall we say, bribing foreign officials to the exporter to launder wild-caught monkeys through captive-bred facilities and label them captive-bred and then bring them into the country under false pretenses with false permits. How did you find out about it? Basically what brought us onto it was that a, a few of the crates were made so bad that when they stopped over in Paris, some of the monkeys escaped. They were coming from Indonesia. And uh, some of the monkeys escaped on the tarmac and had to be euthanized. And, of course, that caught the, caught the news and some of your environmental organizations and so on and so forth. And the more we looked into it, uh, an investigation and so on and so forth, uh, uh, we found out the different laws that were being violated. And the more we looked into it, uh, the worse it got, if you will. And uh, the company finally got prosecuted for a felony violation of the, the Endangered Species Act, the Lacey Act. So, so given that when the when the crates broke, that happened in Paris, you said? Yes. So how does that translate into U.S. investigation? Well, it brought our attention because it was a series. They, the company had wanted to import a whole colony, so it was a series of shipments. And we had already cleared two or three of them, or I shouldn't even say two or three, maybe one or two. And uh, the second or third shipment, if I remember correctly, is, is the one where it, where it caused this to happen. And there was found a um, nursing mother and young, which we knew was illegal, and so we started looking into it further. And that's when the the uh, <clears throat> the environmental groups came out of the woodwork and started supplying information and hinting that there was more to this than we were aware of. And so that's what led to to an investigation that basically lasted about six, seven years, from beginning to end who through full prosecution. And how many monkeys were involved? They were macaques, is that right? Yes, yes, they were long-tailed macaques, and with a full colony, if I remember correctly, it was somewhere around, oh, give or take, it was somewhere around to 700. And they wanted a full colony, so therefore they could release them on their own land and, and breed them themselves, and therefore foregoing having to buy them any more out of country and import them. They wanted a colony so that then they could start a business selling the macaques to laboratories for testing of medicines and things? Well, they, they, the company that I was dealing with was largely an importing and quarantine company, and, and they so they did do some research, but they wanted to bring in the colony for themselves so that then they could continue to breed them and sell them the offspring as opposed to then continuing to have to buy them overseas. Who were they going to sell the offspring they would to? Sell them to ver- they would sell them after they went through quarantine, or, and or uh, captive breeding and so on and so forth, then they would sell them for re- uh, to research companies for various things, from medical to who knows what. And within the U.S., that would be perfectly legal to be breeding Correct. Ma- Correct. long-tailed macaques yes. and selling them off. What was the final 
The company, the company was, the company was convicted. Uh, they pled guilty to a felony. They ended up having to sell the company to to another individual. Um, there was a over a half a million dollars in penalties. Um, the three board of directors had to um, obviously ended up resigning and were not to be allowed to under probation conditions allowed to uh, be involved in the importing of uh, primates for I, I, I believe it was somewhere around five years. So they ended up selling the company and not being becoming involved in that or carrying on any further involvement in it for several years. Did they get back into it? Do you know? I have no idea. I'd say I've been retired three years in investigation. You know, they could be theoretically just out of, off of, out, of, out of probation here for the last couple of years. Why did the investigation take so long? I mean, I think a lot of people are used to crime shows like CSI, which sort of speed <laughs> things up. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they do kind of speed things up. Uh, uh, first of all, uh, you know, it's not the only investigation you're working on, but when you get a pretty important case like that, it kind of takes primary, if you will. But uh, we had to prove that Lacey Act's kind of a tricky law in that you have to, number one, prove that they did something illegally, and then you also have to prove that they knew they were violating the law. It's kind of a double fold. So it's a kind of a double knowingly, as we call it. They have to know that they were importing or exporting wildlife or transporting, and they have to know that they were violating the law. So in order to prove that, I ended up having to fly over to Indonesia, interviewing the exporter, taking statements, and then having to uh, encourage him to come back and testify in a grand jury in Chicago. And, of course, all of this is time, and, and uh, it's not the only investigation or criminal prosecution that an assistant United States attorney is involved with. So... You know, it, there's there's certainly a, a, a percentage of downtime. There's times when, you know, you investigate something, and, you know, for every day you spend out, outside investigating something, you're spending a week back in the office documenting and reporting it up and submitting it and getting it approved and uh, all the documentations involved. It's just, it just takes a lot of time. For something like that, where you're interviewing the exporter to find out what the company owner, the importing company, knew, Right. Does, does that expose him to prosecution as well? It could, but in this particular case, the, uh, the person was given immunity. That's the foreign exporter. You were able to give him U.S. immunity, but it correct could that um, be a problem for him then in Indonesia? It could have been, but to my knowledge, I don't know that anything ever happened. And then what was the role? You had said that NGOs started providing a lot of information. What Correct. was the role? I know one of them that was uh, very active in this particular case was the International Primate Protection League. Correct. And what role did they play in it? Well, to the best of my understanding, they document. like I said, uh, we would have not known anything happened over in France or they had that this, been, this type of, uh, how shall I say, exporting, importing for commercial purposes and transport of wildlife that was... Uh, being exported out of Indonesia under false permits, and uh, they did an awful lot of, from what I understand, picketing of the companies uh, involved in it, and basically uh, <laughs> not making their life very, very good, uh, as well as feeding us with as much information as they could possibly to help us along with our investigation. But there was also, you know, there was also further digging on my part by the the foreign exporter over there in revealing information as well and, and documents that he had. What happened to the monkeys involved in this case? They were forfeited, uh, and the, the company actually got them. I mean, 
and I know that would seem very uh, strange, if you will. I guess that I could, there's probably better words, but the problem is if we turned around and seized them from the initial part of the investigation to to the end of it until they finally go, we would have been paying for the care of five years' worth of 700 monkeys, which would have been an absolute tremendous expense. So rather than us do that, they kept them. Were they able to sell them or breed them in the intervening time? To the best time? of my knowledge, yeah, to the best of my knowledge, yes. Did most of those survive, do you know? Uh, as far as I know, yes. I have no reason to believe that they didn't. Have there been any changes in the laws or impact from this case? I don't know. I don't know. I know that it definitely, from what I understand, caused quite a ripple through the importing primate companies because there's only probably about, oh, I'm guessing four, five, or six main companies that import into the United States. So definitely when you have a small enough industry like that, when somebody screws up like that, it definitely puts everybody else on edge. Whether they were or were not doing anything or not, who knows. But uh, <laughs> if they were, it might make them straighten up their act a little bit. And if they weren't, then they're fine. Nothing to worry about. But who knows? One of your other major cases that has gotten a ton of publicity, <laughs> um, which you mentioned at the beginning, was Operation Arachnid. Right, which, right. Which was... I had, uh, when I was a wildlife inspector, I'd become an interested in that. And that was in the mid-'80s, and I had noticed that there was an awful lot of those types of tarantulas, specifically the Mexican red knee, uh, in the pet trade. And through just some own, um, how shall I say, learning and historical biographical information and uh, the biology of it, I learned that you know they had been in the pet trade for over 100 years or more, and uh, there had never been a documented bite. They were, how shall I say, people described them as an extremely docile, never biting, extremely colorful, very interesting, um, very, very low maintenance. They, as, they, as they said, it made the perfect yuppie pet. You put some crickets in, you can sit there, look at them, take them out, put them in, and they required very little maintenance afterwards. So uh, I looked into it and found out one of the things that made it easy was, or I shouldn't say made it easy, but made me inquire into it more, was the fact that they were endemic to Mexico, which means that's the only place they live, and Mexico prohibited their export for commercial trade. In other words, they didn't issue permits. So obviously the first question you have is, okay, how are these getting in? And then as an agent in law enforcement, the second question is, how do I prove that these are illegal and that the people are bringing in know it. And so it took an awful lot of, of uh, how shall I say, biology studying and gathering information from people that had written articles on them and so on to learn all of the background material that I could in order to that I could uh, learn the characteristics of transporting them and how long they live and how difficult it is to breathe them to learn uh, to avoid falling into the pitfalls uh, that would not allow me to prove their illegality by people smuggling them into the United States. And so along that process uh, of this investigation, which is another investigation that took, you know, a lot, quite a years, five, seven years or whatever, um, the first, I don't remember the actual date, but the first uh, specific species of tarantula to Brachpelma was the Mexican red mead, which is Brachpelma smithi. And that one came on early as what we call Sites Appendix 2. 
and it basically means that it can't be imported or exported out of a country without a site's permit issued by the exporting company. Country. And uh, then shortly thereafter, I, with the help of uh, a, uh, a biologist and official in the uh, Canadian AAZPA organization uh, by the name of Rick West, who was considered one of the foremost authoritarians on arachnids in the North American continent, and then uh, Dr. Robert Wolf, who was also uh, very interested in tarantulas and well, and as especially between us three, we wrote this guide with pictures in it that uh, uh, in preparation for a proposal of putting the rest of the genera on on the uh, site's appendix to as well, which was adopted during this investigation when the CITES met in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I don't remember the date, um, but you could see from the publication the date of it that it's around that time. And uh, the whole genera was then uh, approved uh, by the CITES convention, and uh, a majority of the species of Brachypelma do come from and are endemic to Mexico. Some of the other species go on down through Central America, but a majority of them are from Mexico. Did Mexico always prohibit the commercial sale of all species within the genera? They prohibited the export for commercial trade of all of their terrestrial wildlife. They protected their terrestrial wildlife quite heavily, even more than the United States did and does. They would not issue permits for commercial purposes. Uh, they would uh, they would uh, issue permits for some of their uh, ocean-going species, fish and so on and so forth, but not any of their terrestrial. Aquatic is a better term. Uh, they would issue permits for aquatic, some of their wildlife, but not none of the terrestrial stuff, to the best of our knowledge. And then are birds considered terrestrial or yeah, they would aerial? <laughs> yeah, they would be. A, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> Good point. Uh, avian would be better, but to the best of my knowledge, they didn't issue permits for those either. <laughs> <laughs> what got you on to this investigation? What got me on to the specific investigation was that the... Uh, Illinois game warden by the name of Sheila O'Connor, which later on became a special agent, knew that I was a conducting an investigation on them because we used to work quite closely with them. There are eyes and ears because there's a heck of a lot more than them there are us. In fact, I did an interview with Sheila O'Connor in November 2010 in which we talked a little bit about this case. So tell me, how did Sheila put you onto this case? She was in a pet shop one day and saw one of these Mexican red knee tarantulas in there, and it said from Mexico. So she called me up, and I went down there covertly and saw the tag and so on and so forth. And it said, the tag, I can still remember to this day, I had a red sticker on it. It said Mexican red need. Uh, what did it say? Mexican red need restricted by Mexico. And so I went up to the owner, and I said, uh, how much for that? And he says, well, just like it says, I, I think it was like $175 or something like that. I said, well, that's a little steep. I'll wait till you get some more in. And he says, well, I don't think we'll be getting any more. And I said, oh, how come? He says, well, uh, export by Mexico is prohibited. And I says, well, then how did you get this one? And he says, oh, it's probably smuggled, but once you get them in, it's all right. At which time I showed him my badge and said, no, it's not all right. <laughs> <laughs> and from there, it stood the investigation, and I... A, a few years backtracking, you know, okay, the pet store bought it from the jobber, the jobber bought it from the an importer, the importer bought it from the smuggler, and 
that went that way, and then I learned from other pet shops there were some other ones sent out, and from there on we, we ended up seizing some from different pet shops and from people that actually bought them, the owners, and finally tracked it down to the smuggler and finally ended up uh, uh, prosecuting him in court for felony as well. And uh, I had a big poster board I can remember showing you know, where they came across the border and to the importers that they came to and and then who they transported them to and sold them to the jobbers and which pet stores and was called Elvira's Web. And, of course, the first one seized out of that pet shop was named Elvira. And she probably lived for, she was a adult then at probably age 10 or so, and I had her for more than 10 years before she finally died. And uh, she saw everything from our directors of our official wildlife to church groups to school groups to mothers to garden clubs to Boy Scout clubs to Girl Scout clubs, and she got moved everywhere. She was kind of a <laughs> a token of talk of Fish and Wildlife law enforcement. <laughs> well, we're going to come back to Elvira in sure. <laughs> in just a second, but this is a fascinating case because it's had so much impact. And I just wanted to go back to the idea of so so when you saw that sign and when you had that conversation, you knew right, right. then that he knew what he was doing oh, yeah. was illegal. Yeah. And then how did you find out, you know, what was the smuggling track? How you know, who was but, who was collecting the tarantulas in the first place and then where Well, did I go? didn't know that at the time. Obviously I had to backtrack. I mean I was going from the pet shop again to what they call a jobber, which is kind of a middleman and then to commercial importers, and then and then from the commercial importer, then you had to figure out who supplied them, who actually smuggled them to them. You know, so I was backtracking, which took me, you know, a year or better probably to figure that out, because, you you know, nobody's going to sub- outwardly supply that stuff, so you have to go get it assigned to an assistant United States attorney, and then you have to start getting subpoenas issued so you can go to these people to get their records, so the records are furnished, so you can finally figure out, you know, where these are coming from. But generally speaking, the smugglers would go into Mexico and they would pay the Hispanics uh, usually around three bucks a piece to gather them up, and then the the smuggler would go down there and pay them, and then smuggle them across the border into the United States. And then once they crossed the border, uh, you said they went for one hundred and seventy-five dollars from three dollars to one hundred and seventy-five dollars in the yeah shop. yeah exactly the the they would pay three dollars for them, and then generally these smugglers would turn around and pay oh say a uh, an import, a commercial importer, a big-time commercial importer who then supplied to jobbers and pet shops. Uh, but I'm guessing that they would pay probably, uh, oh, I don't know, maybe uh, 50 to $70, $75, and then the pet shops would charge anything from 125 to $175. Each time it goes down the line, then, you know, the, the cost is more, you know. Are females and males the same price? No, no. Um, the... The males are short-lived. They had kind of have a, a bad deal in, in uh, financial <laughs> life. Yeah. Why? Tell me about this. <laughs> well, the females are long-lived. Like I said, Elvira lived past 20 years of age. Generally speaking, the generally speaking, they're a little bit more specific, but generally speaking, the males and females mature somewhere around six to seven years of age. So these tarantulas are pretty long-lived. They're not just something that you know, lives for a couple of years and dies. They're pretty long-lived, and they don't mature until six, seven years. Then when that maturity comes along and the male develops the sexual organs and so on, he basically runs around and tries to mate with as many females as he can before, A, dying of 
once they get their reproductive organs, they quit eating. Their only mission in life at then is to mate with as many females as they can and die. Either through A, primarily and a lot of times, the consumption by the female. In other words, they mate and then the female kills them and eats them. Or B, they go around and mate and have a lovely little uh, you know, few months of periods there and then they die of uh, old age and or starvation if they make it through not getting eaten by the female. <laughs> that isn't such a great deal. <laughs> no, it's not a great deal. So, the, and then the females continue on to live, but that was part of the investigation and in, 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 in able to being proven uh, that these tarantulas that were being smuggled, uh, the smugglers could not use that. Oh, these were captive bred or. Uh, uh, some of the other reasons they would come up to try to avoid prosecution. Um, you know, the fact that you could look at the tarantulas and look at their size and look at some of their peculiar characteristics and so on, um, you were able to tell the professionals, you put one up, a professional up on the stand, you say, okay, how can you tell that this tarantula is, is not, uh, you know, captive bred, it's well caught, and, you know, the first thing out of the mouth is, well, is because it's a, cause, because it's adult. No, uh, no, no animal breeder in their right mind would turn around and keep something for six to seven years, and then sell it for that cheap, and you know try to keep hundreds of them at a time. They want to if they're if they're successfully able to do it, they want to sell them uh, as a little bit bigger than spiderlings and get them off their hands before they start costing a lot of money. Um, number two, uh, one of the defense mechanisms of, of tarantulas in general is to flick the hairs off their abdomen, they're called urticating hairs, and, and any uh, predator coming around that gets them in their eye, nose and their sinuses, their eyes, is it, just extremely irritating and itching, and even to humans, it can itch, the, itch your skin if you get them caught on there. And so wild-caught ones are very nervous, and if you go near them or handle them or something, their abdomens are generally very bare from uh, having flicked all their hairs, whereas captive-bred ones are most, much more used to being around human beings and so on and so forth. So uh, there's quite a few... Uh, distinguishing factors and characteristics that you can look at to, to make determinations as to their well-caught or captive bred. And that facilitated in, in also helping catching the smugglers and, and, and proving your case. And were some of them captive bred? Is it easy to breed tarantulas? No, no, it's not. No, it's not. You know, you, first of all, you have to, until they become mature, it is hard for the amateur to tell the difference between the male and the female. Uh, that's that's a little bit more difficult than the general person can do. When they get the when they develop their reproductive organs, what are called pedipalps, um, then you can start to identify them. And and there's quite a few characteristics: um, the swollen uh, um, sexual glands at the end, and then the size of the animal itself, and and uh, or should I say the swollen uh, reproductive organs at the end of their they're called pedipalps. And, and so on. Uh, there's different characteristics when they mature, but before that, it's hard to identify that. The bottom line is, anybody buying and making investment in it doesn't want a doesn't want a male. They want a female because it's long lived. And of course, the person that's trying to captive breed him doesn't want to get rid of a male, uh, especially if they're going to mature because they're more valuable because there's not many of them around. They don't survive after reproduction. So. And the females are long-lived. So there's de- depending on who wants it for what reason, they can be of more value or not so much of value. If you're 
if you're somebody as a customer out there, you don't want to mail because, you know, in X number of time, it could die on you if it turns out to be mail. But on the other hand, if you're if you're somebody that wants to uh, breed them, then obviously a mail is, is much more valuable. But, you know, you start out with, first of all, uh, finding a mail. Then you successfully try to captive breed them. Then you successfully try to hatch off these young. And then you successfully try to feed them and get them to the point where you can sell them to market, which is a little bit bigger than a spiderling. And you add up all of these characteristics of successfully captive breeding them, as well as the characteristics of the actual adult tarantulas themselves, uh, it makes for a real good court case with professionals that are able to sit there and look at them and say, no, these aren't, or yes, these are, which has, by the professionals, stood up and testifying in court. Were those professionals who testified, was that Robert Wolf and Rick West that yes. you had mentioned earlier? Yes, yes. Rick West primarily, but Robert Wolf did some, did some assistance as well. What about the care of the tarantulas? You had mentioned that they're the perfect yuppie pet because they are low maintenance. Um, yeah, they are. They are. You just put them in a terrarium and they just sit there. You throw crickets in once in a while. You have a little little petri dish there for them to drink water out of, and that's it. Uh, the only the only time uh, the, the red knee tarantulas were were big enough that they would eat pinky mice too as well. Anything little little like that, from crickets right up to pinky mice that they, they will eat, um, or whatever they can scavenge like that around the ground. Um, but other than that, a little petri dish for water, the only time that they're really vulnerable is when they shed their skins. And, of course, when they're real small, they shed them more often when they're adult. But once a year when they're adult, they shed them, and they turn over and look like they're almost dying. But they're surely, slowly working off that skin, and then, then they have a new one underneath it, and they shed the whole skin, legs and head and everything. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. how often you said they do that once a year? Yeah, once a year when they're adults, but when they're or even maybe even a little bit longer. But as they're growing, when they're young, they you know they shed it quite a bit more frequently. So why do they shed the skin? Because it's that's, it, that's, is it an exoskeleton? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Is there a market for the skins? <laughs> there seems to be a market for um, everything. <laughs> don't know. Don't know. Don't know if there is or not. I don't know that I've ever seen a skin being sold, but I suppose it's possible. Does it look like a snake skin? What does it feel like? Well, it, it when it first comes off of their skin, it's very moist. They they basically turn over in their back, and they look like they're dying, and they basically jerk their legs, and you can see them jerking and pushing, and they're treshing, and the and the uh, the skin basically splits open, and they slowly work it off. And when it comes off, if you catch it right away, it's moist, and you can fold the legs back out and everything and kind of set it up and it'll dry and it basically dries like a crispy piece of skin and it becomes very, very, very fragile and very obviously very light. So if you want to try to keep it intact, you have to handle it with kit gloves But um, after it dries. But that's kind of a crispy little skin. And do you know what the role of tarantulas is within the ecosystem? You know, why should we care about tarantulas? Well, I always had a personal view, and then that's where, how shall I say, without being polite and professional, where some people and some organizations differed, but I be- always believed that what was wrong with wildlife surviving for itself. In other words, not for the benefit of human, but also for the benefit of itself. But with that being said, yes, it does have value. Uh, you know, as we continue on in this world, we're continuing by scientific research. 
being able to find out absolute uses for different uh, types of wildlife or, or, or plants or birds or whatever, any wildlife flora and fauna. Uh, the research is continuing. Um, with the tarantula, they were looking at the venom uh, as a possible neurotoxin, which then is able to penetrate the brain barrier without damage, and they're looking at it for research in, in uh, uh, cures for Parkinson's and Alzheimer's diseases or assisting in aiding in in uh, preventing or, or, or uh, reducing uh, those types of diseases. So the bottom line is you never know what uh, out there in the in nature may end up turning out to help helping humans. I know they're looking at, for example, uh, uh, some of the toxins that come off of these poison arrow frogs. Um, the, if you will, in surgery, um, I'm sure everybody's heard of the, uh, oh, what do you call them, the uh, suckers in the water, the leeches in the water uh, that uh, are able to attach to animals or human beings and start sucking the blood. And Well, why don't they why doesn't the skin and the blood coagulate? Well, because the leech secretes an anticoagulant, which is now used in medicinal in humans in, re, in, in in surgery, and it's called the medicinal leech. And that medicinal leech is protected and regulated because of its value in in uh, surgery as an anticoagulant. So the bottom line is there are plenty of uses for plants and animals. Uh, that us humans depend on, and they were still, they are still studying. And there's all kinds of wildlife and terrestrial and avian and so on out there that uh, have these possibilities that we we don't even know about yet. And so, the, who knows? Who knows just how valuable some of these things could turn out to be? And if we don't take care of them, they aren't going to be around. Now. You had mentioned that as a wildlife inspector at O'Hare, you had seen a lot of these red-kneed tarantulas come through. Right. Um, is, is, why Chicago? You know, is it a center for tarantula trade and breeding? No, no, they were coming, no, they were coming through uh, in other ports as well. It's just, how shall I say, uh, inspectors, not so much agents, but somewhat, um, but more so inspectors. Obviously, no human being is able to sit there and learn about all the specific species of all the wildlife throughout the world. So inspectors turn around and they develop specialties. I know I had uh, peer inspectors out in California that uh, became very heavily specialized in reptiles, or there was another one I knew that became in birds. Well, I became in, you know, tarantulas and so on. That was kind of my specialty. Some people would be involved in primates. So you become involved in those, and you turn around and you talk together, and you find out things, and you, you know, and some people are involved in tropical fish. So Chicago wasn't necessarily a hub for it; it was just that I took up an interest in it, and and, and developed investigations from that. What happened to the spiders during and after the case? I know Elvira came to live with you. Right, and but a majority of the other ones, uh, and as well as a couple other cases that were made by agents, uh, one agent out in California caught another smuggler that was uh, also caught and put in jail. Uh, these tarantulas were given care of. Uh, Robert Wolf, Dr. Robert Wolf, took care of a bunch of them. Uh, I know Rick West took care of, took on some of them, but uh, there was a, one big load that ended up getting sent back down to Mexico. 
Um, whether they actually released them or whether they put them into their captive breeding program or, or what they did, I don't know, but they were returned back to Mexico. But biologically, it's hard for them to release them back into the wild because they don't know where they came from and what ecosystem they were putting them back in or what have you. So I suspect that they were probably given to one of the universities or one of the uh, research places down there for captive breeding purposes because I know Mexico is trying to now um, develop for their own economical uh, use. Uh, you know, if, if these are popular for pets or what have you and there's a commercial value, then just like the monkeys we talked to earlier, if they can get, develop a captive breeding program and they can sell them, then export them out for commercial purposes. That's just money they can make without without the resource itself being dwindled. So why did you take Elvira? Well, she was the first one. She was the first one that I caught in that pet shop in countryside Illinois. So that was the first one, and that was the one I started with. And But with that being said, you also, from beginning to end, have to or try to keep intact all of the evidence, which in this case was wildlife, until the cases are prosecuted or adjudicated through the court system, because they are evidence. <clears throat> and had you ever owned a tarantula before? <laughs> no. <laughs> and what did your no. wife say? <laughs> <laughs> well, they were kept at the office, but I did bring them home once in a while. But the kids and the wife are kind of used to that once in a while. You know, nobody they care for stuff on weekends, so you bring home to care for it. So on, but, uh, that was definitely some of the more of the uh, out of the ordinary stuff, that's for sure. <laughs> so tell me more about Elvira. What did she look like? How big was she? You said she what... was, well, if you outstretched her legs, she was slightly smaller than my hand, a man's hand. And she was very beautiful. I mean, uh, if you can appreciate that, I know, I'm sure some people would say, how oh, can you call a tarantula beautiful? But uh, she was, uh, she, she had reds and blacks and tans in her and so on, and she was extremely docile, and you could pick her up, and she didn't flick hairs or anything uh, off of her abdomen, and it was just, it was just a very interesting animal. I mean, you know, it's not often that people sit there and are, get a tarantula put in their hand, you know, and it just sits there. Like I said, they're extremely docile and very sedentary. They they don't do much moving around at all. So they just wait for. They generally in the wild are in a in a rat hole or a snake hole that they've adopted. It's been abandoned. They lay their web at the in the front of it. When they feel something come across, that they go out and if they want to make it lunch, they do. But that's about, with the exception of the mating season, that's generally about <laughs> the, the <laughs> significance of their moving around. So the the movie star version of tarantulas coming to attack you is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Although, although you know, you talk about the movie thing. Honest to goodness, I've seen, I've seen that Mexican red knee tarantula. I've seen it in Star Trek. I've seen it in the Second Generation. I've seen it in the Wild Wild West. I've seen it in, oh, just about every time tarantulas come in. You know, the the tarantula movies and everything. There's always the Mexican red knee tarantula in there. <laughs> it must make you chuckle to think of. It does. It does. It, it, I'd look at it. It would make me chuckle. Now, did she have but, a personality? You said she was. Very sedentary and docile. Yeah, but most of those—that's why they were very popular in the in the in the in the pet trade because they are very sedentary. Now, uh, you know, each each species or genera of have their own characteristics. Uh, uh, the Indian ornamentals that, that would come out of Indian Sri Lanka or so on uh, that hid on trees and so on and blended in are much more aggressive, and you you would go around them and get bit. Their venom was more 
potent, but the uh, that's the reason the, the Brack Palma and the Mexican Red Mead were, were so popular is because they are very docile. If they were to bite, as long as you weren't you know allergic to them, but if they were to bite, they were no worse or less than a bee sting as compared to some other tarantulas that can be downright nasty and put you in the hospital and can be very aggressive. So that's what made it so doggone popular. It was very colorful, very sedentary, non-aggressive, and like I said, uh, it required very little maintenance. So it, as they said, made the... the the yuppie pet for somebody who didn't have time for a pet. <laughs> now, she's, you had mentioned that she essentially became a spoke spider for her breed and went to yep. Girl Scout groups. And t- So tell me about some of her guest appearances. I know she made many at Chicago area institutions like the Field Museum of Natural History yep. and the Lincoln Park Zoo and the Children's Museum and Chicago yep. Academy of Sciences. So. Right. You've got it. You've got it. them all. The Girl Scouts, uh, uh, Washington, D.C., to several of the directors, but probably your biggest claim to fame was when the rest of the genera had was being passed in Fort Lauderdale at CITES, I had samples of most of the species in the genera, but Elvira obviously is the most famous, and I have pictures on my wall down in my office at home now of the, both the directors uh, holding uh, Elvira, the Mexican Air Dean Tarantula, especially at the CITES convention in Fort Lauderdale. Really? So, <laughs> So she was, she was an uh, an advocate, a lobbyist way before there it was you popular. <laughs> You're right. She was a she was an NGO. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she was she was an NGO spokesperson for herself. Can you walk me through that meeting? Because that's actually really critical. That um, you know this where she made that appearance at the. Well, I don't. I don't know. I wasn't actually in the meeting, although I, if you will, I was peering through the window. I had somebody come out and tell me, "Okay, Dave, they're voting on it." But what had happened was, we knew that you know that the Mexican red knee tarantula, request and Robert, Doctor Robert Wolf, uh, it wasn't the only tarantula that was being traded in. You know, the the, the another one, the the Mexican red legged tarantula, and uh, there was the curly hair, and oh, there was there's. Five or six that were very popular uh, that were also being traded in, and because of that trade and because of that genera and so on, uh, we all got our heads together. And of course, I couldn't because I was a government official, so more of that job was taken on by Rick West and Dr. Robert Wolf and so on. But uh, the guide was written up, and they as- they assisted the United States government, Fish and Wildlife Service, and assisted the Mexican government in drawing up the proposal that would be submitted in front of the CITES Convention of Fort Lauderdale. So, you know, these governments all over the world get word of what's being proposed and so on beforehand, and then they go there, they learn what's going on, they learn the trade and so on and so forth, and and the proponents, obviously, who the proponents are and and what the impact is and so on, and and then they have a meeting and they have decisions and then they, you know, talk about it biological and whatever else goes on in there, and then then they actually take a vote. And I've got a little picture on my wall, like I say, of... uh, the convention, it took all of five minutes for them to make a, you know, I think I believe it was almost unanimous uh, vote to make the whole uh, uh, genera Brack Palma uh, Sites Appendix 2 because of that. So it was it was really a neat thing to see happen. So did you have an exhibit outside the meeting yes. rooms? Yeah, I had I had these, these guides that we had written up that were being distributed in the Wildlife Inspector's Guidebooks as well as Inspector's Guidebooks throughout the world. There was an identification of these Brack Palma tarantulas, so that was printed up and set all over the all over the world. But I had them beforehand uh, before they were multiple printed. I had a few there 
that were set out on the table with these different species so that as they were, then they were passed, the delegates could come out and actually see what they had just actually approved. So, you know, obviously you're sitting out there in pins and needles saying, okay, what happens if this is not improved? <laughs> you know, that was really nerve-wracking. But, you know, you, so I'm peeking through the window watching them all raise their hands and in five minutes approve it. So that was really a good thing. And then they brought the director out and other country representatives to see the actual, what they had just approved especially, of, of course, the Mexican government officials. So it was really after it was approved that it got more play than prior to it, or did it help? Oh. Or both, really? I, both, really, I think, you know, because this was kind of right in the middle of the investigation, if I remember correctly. So it got play beforehand. It got play because of the seizures. It got play because of all of the talk. It got play because of the convention. And it got played at the end because of the prosecutions. Did a lot of people handle Elvira? Was she easy to... Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they, yeah, we'd have we. The uh, when the at O'Hare there at the Terminal Five, U.S. Customs would put on these shows, and they would ask the different representatives to uh, agency representatives to assist in giving a little uh, show or talk show uh, about what they do. You know, because we had five different agencies there. We had U.S. Public Health. We had uh, at that time before they joined up together. We had immigration. We had customs. We had. Department of Agriculture, we had Fish and Wildlife. So we had five different uh, agencies right there in that Terminal 5 all functioning together that would put on these programs. And so we'd always have Elvira out there, and she was passed. You know, we've had uh, the Boy Scouts and law enforcement merit badges and wildlife merit badges and Girl Scouts and church groups and, oh, social organizations, ladies' gardens, clubs, and, you know, everything would come through, and they'd have the talks in the morning when the flights weren't coming in and, She's passed around all of them. We'd sit there and start her out at the beginning of the talk, and everybody would pass around, and by the time we'd get around to the end of the talk, the talk would be over with, and everybody had, everybody had held her. They wanted to. As well as uh, we'd take her down to the state fishing game because we always gave a little bit of uh, our laws to the state fishing game. We gave a program for uh, a couple of days uh, during the training of uh, new, new uh, state game wardens. So Terminal 5, in it. When flights weren't coming in, you did educational programs? Yes, yeah, yeah. And then she also went down, I took her down to teach the, after I became an Asian, I would take her down as well as the tarantulas down to the uh, wildlife inspector basic program where they'd, have, where they'd hire out new wildlife inspectors and take them down there and um, I'd have a, a block of hours to teach them about that, that type of thing. And was there anyone who was particularly, you know, impressed or taken by Elvira that you remember? Oh boy! Oh, I don't know. They were, you know, what tarantulas? How often do you hold a tarantula? <laughs> <laughs> you know, really, a tarantula the big as your hand. And if you, especially, I mean, there there were times when when males and or females were absolutely. I some of them were terrified, wouldn't even go near them. But by the time they'd see everybody handle them, you know, it may be at the end of the time, but they'd slowly creep up and say, you know, somebody'd coach them into hold them, and their eyes bug out of their heads and say, oh, my God, you know, and, of course, people would be taking pictures of them, you know, couldn't believe them. they're holding holding a big old tarantula, but, you know, everybody always seemed to be fascinated with her. That's that's what made her such a what's a, such a uh, good emissary, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> and when and how did she die? You said you well, had her for 10 uh, yeah, years? Yeah, I had, I had uh, they are very, very, very susceptible to uh, drafts and cold weather, and I had... Uh, it was it was uh, winter time and, and the state game wardens had a new class of rookies going through and I brought her home to uh, and she was just in a, what we call a shoebox terrarium that's what I transported her in and you little had had a little half cup uh, 
peat box in there for them to go into and hide into. And and uh, apparently she caught a draft or something because I got up the next morning to take her and she was on her back with all her legs curled up. <laughs> so that was the end. And would it have? Could it have just been old age too? Because you said she was. I I I would like to think it was. Who knows? It could have been a combination of both. <laughs> when we spoke before, did you say that the flags had gone at half mast? Oh, that was just a joke. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay. That was just that was just my way of uh, giving sentimental bon voyage. So. <laughs> So, I'd had her. I'd, I'd had her for, like I said, probably a good ten years, and so in those years, she had seen an awful lot of people and an awful lot of promotion. And I even, I even had, we even had one of the government sites officials from Mexico City come up and testify, not in my case, but in a fellow agent's case, because he was a CITES representative, and he was coming up to testify about Mexican law in another case. And I took him into my office, and he saw those. And he, the first time he saw me, he, says, he looked at me, and he says, you know, it's like, what are you doing with these? And I said, well, this is my case. This is what I'm doing for your government. And so he was very fascinated that I had those seized and were in my office and that I was enforcing their laws. Had he seen them up close and personal before? No, no. In fact, I tried to I tried to get Elvira out and get him hold it, and he didn't even want to hold it. He was, <laughs> he was glad to see them in the boxes and very fascinated that we were enforcing the laws down there and so on. And you know that we'd seized him, seized him there, but uh, he, he he wasn't about to hold him. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know if anything changed in Mexico? Was there more enforcement? There? No, I don't. I can't. I I would like to think there was, and you know what? There probably was, but can I actually validate that there was or wasn't? No, I don't know. Hmm. But I do know that I do know that the, they because of seizures and and so on in the interest and them Mexican gaining knowledge of the amount of trade that they have in past years and even before I retired were developing captive breeding programs so that you know commercial companies could make money and a profit on them without having to resort to you know the smuggling so have you gotten another tarantula since Elvira <laughs> no no I haven't <laughs> although I have thought of it often enough I have thought of it several times <laughs> It'd be my luck. I, it'd be my luck. I go out to one of these reptile shows and buy one, and it would have ended up being wild caught or something, and I'd get my fucking right, a ring. Right. That would really be good, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and now, can you? T- you must be able to tell the difference quickly, but between a wild caught and a yeah, and I a could, I could, I you know, I, I, I you know, I, I could pretty well, pretty well at ease. I mean, the bottom line. Bottom line is the size and how you're able to handle them and how they react to handling and and there's just several. Another one that I had assisted and I I just jogged my memory. uh, They can get infested with mites and I remember uh, um, an inspector in New York City had received a shipment from Germany and she called me up and the German permit had said that these were captive bred and so I said, well, send them down to me. So I sent them down to me and. If you do it right, you can chill them in a refrigerator so they become lethargic. And so I chilled them a little bit, you know, five, ten minutes in the, in the refrigerator, and they become lethargic, and I'd lay their legs over a big, huge uh, marker so that the joints, the insides of the joints would show, and then you put them underneath a microscope, 
and I was able to document all of these different mites that were inside the joints. Very small. You can only see a microscope. But the key was, on top of all the other characteristics to develop, that was kind of the fatal straw because if you could see these mites and you could document them, you know they only came from the wild. So that was that was another final how do I say coup de gras in, in order and you know based on that and the characteristics I send it back and said these are these are not captive bred these are wild caught and these this is why and and once the reasoning was sent back as evidence to the to the foreign exporter and the importer they ended up abandoning them and paying paying penalties because he said you know what the jig's up we can't argue with it. How many tarantulas did you ultimately save in Operation Arachnid? Oh my goodness! I don't know. I I know that uh, I have no idea. You know because you you can you can sit there and you can seize all of these, but then you turn around and once the word's out, I know that there were several big time smugglers in the European community that wouldn't after a while would not even attempt to send what they had before because they knew that once they came to the United States, the word was out, the pictures were there, the research had been done and that there was no way after examination or inspection that they would be allowed into the country. So basically they're losing money. So, you know, I, I do know and can feel, feel good about the fact that the trade was definitely uh, cur- curtailed quite a bit because of uh, the elevated uh, popularity of this investigation and, you know, and the knowledge that was gained in prosecuting this in proving cases, uh, that definitely helped curtail the, the, the smuggling of them. Well, I appreciate your taking the time to talk with me, Dave. Well, my pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with veteran U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service Special Agent David Kirkby about wildlife law enforcement. Edited transcripts of selected programs are available on my website, laurelnemi.com, and also on mongabay.com. That's M-O-N-G-A-B-A-Y dot com. You can also find archived episodes of The Wildlife on iTunes, at my website, laurelnemi.com, and at laurelnemi.podbean.com. You can stream The Wildlife live at theradiator.org every Monday from 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Of course, if you have any comments about this show or ideas for future ones, you can email me at laurel at laurelnemi.com. This has been The Wildlife. I'm your host, Laurel Neamey, and you're listening to The Radiator, 105.9 FM, WOMMLP in Burlington, Vermont.